I think one of the first things that we'll do as a talking exercise will be um, an elaboration of an insight that I had from working with Upandita, who's a (coughs) Burmese meditation teacher, uh, not in relationship with another person. So it's wonderful for me to have learned this particular insight from... uh, from what was actually a very valuable practice instruction. Um, about ten years into my practice, I studied with Upandita, and he had a particular style of conducting interviews. And we were coached in how to do an interview before you came to see him. He said, come to your interview and say, uh, since yesterday, in my sitting, when it is clearest, this is my experience, and then tell. I see this, and this, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. When I am walking, when I am clearest, this is my experience, and tell. In between those times, when I'm eating or doing my job, whatever, when I am clearest, this is my experience. And then, if there's some particular difficulty that you have, that's a recurrent difficulty, you might want to mention it as well. But start with, when I am clearest, this is my experience. I realized uh, when I was given that instruction, first of all, how much of a um, uh, kind of confessional mentality uh, I had, I think other people have, of um, come to an interview and talk from difficulty rather than from strength. Um, whoever taught me said Upandita does not want to know that you took three naps yesterday that's not going to help him that's that's the weakest point of your practice you may have taken three naps but if there was a moment of clarity or five minutes of clarity or some period of clarity and you tell that to him then he will be able to say you know when you have a moment of clarity like that again what I want you to really look at is this and this and this and notice that and that and that And when you do, my understanding was and is now, because I teach in that same way, is that when I help people to refine the moments in which they are clearest and strongest, then their practice moves ahead. And the leading edge of their practice moves, and the trailing end of their practice goes with it. So it's like pulling the practice from the front rather than pushing it from behind. It's a much more constructive way to work. It also makes people feel much better about themselves. Instead of coming in, I took three naps and my mind is preoccupied with I've fallen in love with the person in front of me on the Zafu. That is a problem, but that is not the biggest clarity in the practice. Because clarity might be, I sit and I really feel the pleasure of being moment to moment relaxed and alert in my body, and suddenly my mind fills with lust And then I am able to see, if we do it that way, if we're working at the clear end, how painful that lust is. That it's a mind state, that it comes and goes. That that lust disappears when the bell for tea rings. Then the lust for tea replaces the lust for the person in front of you. But that lust is just an energy that finds an object from time to time that we perhaps identify with and then torment ourselves with but which we could see clearly and understand clearly. It's a very useful way to 
deal with strength. It also makes people feel better about themselves. Come in and say the best part of their practice. Then the person is able to correct what's down here. So I think actually it it um, goes over into our relationship with other people. When I when I meet with people in interviews and I try to encourage them to use that style, when they tell me what it is that's the clearest in this and the clearest in this and the clearest in this, I'm really eager to tell them that's marvelous. You see this and this and this. Look a little closer and then you'll be able to see that and that. And so I can really, they can hear that I have heard that best piece of themselves. That then sustains our relationship so that I can also say, when they say, you know, and I'm having terrible trouble, I actually fall asleep quite a bit, then I can be able to say, well, first of all, it's going to get better as you pay attention over here at this other end. And second of all, get up anyway. Even if you're sleepy in the morning, get up and sit on the zafu. Be good for you to do it. And they can hear that in the context of I've already been encouraging. They haven't had to present themselves in a demeaning way, and I have recognized them in the best way. That, you know, we do that, we know that in parenting, don't we? Everybody who's at least, you know, who, in our culture we all know that about parenting, that it's marvelous to tell children first everything wonderful about them. This and this and this is great, sweetheart. It's so unlike you not to do this because these other parts are really great. Let's try to, you know, you know, do this this other way. We do that with our children. We could do it with our person. Uh, I think we don't so much because they frighten. We get frightened. I want to make one important little diversion and we'll come back to it. I think one of the reasons that we're least skillful about it in our relationship with our intimate is we have so much riding on that. You know that, of course, we have a lot riding on how we raise our children, and well, I certainly had a lot riding on how I did my practice. But we pick out someone to be in intimate relationship with, and we want so much for that to be nurturing and healing and fulfilling. It is a tremendous possibility. I mean, apart from what I presented earlier about it's a chance to grow, if that were all it is, we could live in a monastery. You can grow there also. You know, uh, it's also a chance to be with someone in a in a relationship that's nurturing and friendly and partnered and uh, companionable and erotic and has lots of possibilities. I'm just thinking as I say that, all of those things, by the way, are true of monastic practice as well in a different way. It's companionable. So I want to just make sure that I portray that right. Be the one who encourage you to do it if you haven't done it. It's companionable to be in a silent monastery with other people. You really have a relationship. It's companionable and sustaining and supportive and gratifying and communal. And... Uh, um, tender, really. It's also actually erotic, but not erotic with somebody else. It really, practice uh, mindfulness is often full of rapture and tremendously erotic. But it's not a friendly erotism. It's not one that you share with other people. There's something about an erotic relationship that's shared. 
that doesn't happen in a monastic venue. And there's something about the monastic venue, that, which is wonderful. In another lifetime, I either have been or will be because I love that way of life. It's not clearly what I signed on to this time. Um, the other thing that monastic venues do not offer as much, at least as we're using them now, is the opportunity of someone to talk to about our own inner dynamic, have them teach us and have them listen to us. So, do you know, in traditional uh, Theravada communities, one of the things that monks do is they do tell each other. They do have uh, group uh, confession where people tell about what they feel, where they feel they've missed the mark on something and ask forgiveness of the community. Communal members are encouraged to tell each other and be helpful to each other. I don't know how that is, so I can't say it's better or worse or not as helpful as living with someone in a close, physical, erotic, intimate relationship. Because I don't know if it's better or not better, because I haven't done that. But there's a way of using community for personal growth. But we only know the way that we do it, and I think it's valuable the way that we do it. I'll talk just a little bit more about those three parts of that path, and then particularly about right speech, and then we'll have lunch. All those parts of that path, right speech, right action, and right livelihood, it's easy to put them together, as I did earlier, and say, it's really right attention, right clarity. We won't be exploitive or abusive. I have such an... Such a simple dharma, in a way. Sometimes I hope I'm not simple-minded. I think to myself, to whatever degree we see clearly the truth of suffering in the world, to that degree are we mandated, internally mandated, to behave impeccably. That's my whole dharma in one sentence. If we saw clearly how much pain there is in the human experience, even before we make it worse with greed, hatred, and delusion, just by being in a body, in a life that is fragile and impermanent and um, always needs being taken care of, and a relationship that is fragile and often not permanent and always needs taken care of. So really interesting image of relationship from Thich Nhat Hanh, from um, Teilhard de Chardin. It's really wonderful. The best images about relationship come from people not in relationship. <laughs> Learn about uh, right speech and relationship from Upandita. Uh, Teilhard was a Catholic monastic. Uh, he said a relationship is like a baby. It's like a third person that Two people come together and they make a relationship. And you can't just make a baby and leave it on its own. You have to take care of it after you make it. And the same, you can't just make a relationship and then say, okay, we made that relationship, now it's on its own. Everybody on to the next. That it requires care and feeding like, like babies do. 
otherwise it withers or it doesn't grow. He used to draw two little circles, here's person A and person B and here's their relationship up here. Like, are they really taking care of that relationship? So I remember learning it the first time and thinking, well, maybe I didn't think such a... I'm not sure. I forget it what I thought. Uh, <laughs> it's a long time ago. I think what I thought is, well, he's a monastic. So. But I think it's a value. I'm sorry if I thought that uh, monastics have a relationship and relationships need care. And I even thought about, as I was just sitting here and sitting with you and thinking a little bit, about uh, even such an obvious thing like uh, right livelihood has to do with relationship. We tend not to talk very much about right livelihood in the time of the Buddha. The very simple um, um, definition of right livelihood. Right livelihood was don't do anything that exploits or abuses. So don't uh, do soldiering, don't be a mercenary, don't manufacture um, guns or ammunition or warfare materials. Uh, Don't keep slaves. That was right, livelihood. Um, Over the years I've thought about how complicated it is now to know that one's livelihood is actually right livelihood because I have to think about where my... IRA is invested in a mutual fund and whether that mutual fund supports businesses that are in fact exploitive or abusive. So it's much more complicated to think about right livelihood now. I was even thinking about livelihood in the sense of not even so much uh, the creation of, of money or keeping oneself financially afloat, but what we do with our lives uh, as a major piece of our lives, for those of us who do something, have a, some métier, some work, that uh, one of the ways that I have to, my, I, I could think to myself, my livelihood, well, certainly it must be a right livelihood. I teach Dharma. Um, it's got to be right livelihood. But I think about the questions for me are not so much, am I teaching the right thing, but am I it's possible for me to teach so much that I'm not available to my family. Maybe that's not a right livelihood. Or to travel so much that I'm not available to be in my relationship in an appropriate amount. Be strange to think about teaching Dharma in so much of a way that it wasn't a right livelihood. It's kind of strange to think about people who meditate so that hours and hours a day so they will not be able. They will not be obliged to talk to their person. You know, that's, you know, it's like one of those things where how can you fault a person for meditating six hours a day? But if in fact while they're meditating six hours a day, they're not talking to their person to, about what's up, that would be really not a right mindfulness or a right concentration. So everything requires, I think, on some level, even stepping back and saying. Not am I doing a practice that's right, but is this practice being done in the right amount at the right time with the right intention? What's, what's the point of this? Why am I sitting for six hours a day? Is it instead of something else? So it's a very, really interesting thing to think about, even one's work. I mean, I assume that everybody here is doing a work that's not consciously exploitive or abusive. 
but how is my work perhaps keeping me from my relationship? Do I do the work instead of the relationship? Do I do the work because if I don't do the work, uh, my own self, sense of self-esteem rests on doing the work and I'm doing it instead of looking at my own internal needs. I think that it's a place where I have to watch really closely. So let's talk a little bit about uh, right speech, just particularly because we'll soon go and have some speaking and some eating. You know, right speech is one of the factors of right action. Right action are don't harm, don't take what's not given, don't use your sexuality in a way that's exploitive, don't speak in, or abusive, don't speak in a way that's ex- exploitive or abusive, and keep your mind clear. I think that there's this whole separate category for right speech because, as I mentioned earlier, it's so potent. I like to, I don't know if I, I like to is the right way to say this, I often with a group this size will say, how many people here remember um, a hurtful comment that someone made to you over a year ago. First of all, how many people here ever broke a bone over a year ago? Keep your hand up if it still hurts. Okay. Now, put your hand up if someone made a hurtful comment over a year ago. Keep your hand up if it still hurts. Now, Oh, keep your hand up if you can remember a comment from over two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, thirty years ago, forty years ago. I actually would like to propose that the number for most people is their age minus five. <laughs> think, think. Somebody said to you, child is not working up to their, this child does not work up to their potential. Oh, a whole generation of people heard that they were not working up to their capacity or their potential. Some mythical potential. Who knows what that potential is? Or you're just like your so-and-so, your brother, your sister, or you're not at all like your sister. Or you, Thank goodness we're not. We're us. We're not supposed to be like the brother or the sister or the mythical potential was supposed to be like us. Or some remark that somebody made to us that still hurts in our relationship. How many people, everybody here is in a relationship, can remember a remark that the person, obviously you're still in a relationship with that person, you're here. So am I. How many people can remember a hurtful remark that their person in relationship made to them? Imagine everybody's hand is up. No, you can't remember. <laughs> you can look around. Let's do it again. Do you remember your person ever making a remark to you that was painful? Okay. That doesn't necessarily mean it still hurts. You may have healed it, right? But the possibility of hurting another person. Can you remember a remark that you made to the other person which you then lamented as having been painful? Okay. So unless we get chalkboards and communicate only by written message, the chances are that we'll hurt each other. 
It's a very good thing that we can uh, make amends for it afterwards. We can't ever take it back. We can't erase it you know, somehow. We have to make the space big enough around it and the context big enough so that healing can happen. There's a, there's a way in which I have begun to think about uh, Dharma practice as uh, yet a larger expression of a lifelong of, of um, our intention to heal and become the fullest kind, the fullest that the the most whole person that we can be. Do you know I was a psychologist long before I heard about the Buddha or about Dharma, and uh, the early days of psychology talked about healing um, intrapersonal conflicts that our ego was in conflict with our libido or that our aggressive instincts were in conflict with our ego or our superego was in conflict with our libido. But it was all intra-psychic, everything pushing like a mechan- like a machine that would have burst, so we had to work that out. And then psychology became very much interested in interpersonal uh, stresses and strains, not so much intrapersonal, but interpersonal. And people began to do group therapy and couples therapy and relational therapy and to think of themselves not so much in conflict with themselves in that internalized ego structure, but really in a difficulty with other people. Then people began to talk about maybe we have a wrong view of psychology. We're seeing it as... Um, uh, an illness rather than a challenge of growth in life that we really do have to come to terms with our libidinal strivings. We really do have to discover that we have aggressive feelings when we are irritated and that we have uh, ways in which we can express them in a wholesome way. It's not a sickness. It's just a way of growing up. That We shouldn't think of people who are having difficulty with one or another of those challenges as having illnesses. It's just the piece of a challenge that they haven't quite worked out yet. And the next piece of psychology, which in the 50s and 60s we were calling uh, humanistic psychology, I didn't like that very much because it sounded like what came before it was inhumane. Uh, now it was going to be humane. Um, it had to do with seeing people as a whole person, not just as a pathological conflict system. But, you know, here's a person with difficulty working with authority, but nevertheless writes wonderful poetry and plays the cello and gardens and see the whole person. Then we began to add to that, in fact, not only is the business of psychology the business of resolving conflict, but the whole business of being a person in the world and talking about uh, purpose and meaning and aspiration and what are, we, what are we doing here? And so that psychology got bigger and it went from intrapersonal to interpersonal to humanistic to existential. What are we doing here? And then really talking about, you know what, not only what are we doing here, but what's the largest picture that we can imagine? Could we have a friend? Don't we have in each of us something that feels touched by an understanding or a concept larger than this narrow egocentric one. Every once in a while, 
we have that shift so that instead of seeing life happening to us, just for a moment we see life happening. I think that's amazing. You know, so that kind of a paradigm shift where we're quite free in that moment. It's really one of the insights of uh, mindfulness practice is that the fundamental insight of anatta or selflessness that we construct a separate self who lives in this body, who owns this body, and to whom this life is happening. And we live, most of the time, out of the point of view of that separate self. And of course, we actually have to remember our separate, our separate story. We have to remember what, home, what house to go home to and what bed to get into. And it works out better on a societal level if we... <laughs> You know, remember to cross the street when the light is green and not red and what's good for us to eat and what's not good for this body to survive. So heuristically speaking, it's good to feel that there's a person who is in charge of this life. But the, the real insight of practice that one hopes to arrive at is that there isn't anything permanent about this and that this manifestation of body and consciousness and even personality interesting and unique as it appears is like everything else a passing phenomena and the the that doesn't make it uh, not important or significant certainly not unimportant or insignificant to the people with whom we're in relationship but it makes it uh, easier to touch each other as we feel that we are all part of the really great story of life not my life but life unfolding itself in these myriad forms. Ultimately, that particular dharmic insight, transpersonal, if you will, is what allows us in our clearest moments to appreciate uh, our everybody and within everybody our intimate partner for their, their unique specialness. M- much of the time, if we could all complete the sentence my partner would be perfect if only they could change this, this, and this, these two or three things. Short of those, they fix up these two or three things, they'd be exactly the person I was looking for. But if they fix up those two or three things, they wouldn't be who they were. And they, There's the person that they actually are. If they fixed up those two or three things, they wouldn't challenge us in the way that they do. But if we see that challenge is just a challenge, and Everyone is uniquely them because of the, the, really in the most profound way, because of understanding deeply the nature of karma. They can't be different now. They could change. But as they are right this minute, they've come to this point. We each of us have because of every bit of karmic precision that's ever happened. We can all change out of this moment which is what we are hoping all of us to do, which is what practice is about, which best psychology is about, which best spiritual practice is about, and I think what relationship is about. When we are frightened, we jump back into the sense of separateness, and when we are, and we protect our separate boundaries. And when we're not frightened, we really take care of each other and uh, don't need to 
be so concerned about ourselves. It's actually wonderful to discover that what makes so much sense psychologically is really 2,000-year-old dharma, 2,500-year-old dharma from a monastic tradition. I'd like to make the suggestion that we sit for five minutes, then we have some instructions for how to go and have lunch with your person. Is that all right with you, that we sit for five minutes and then have the talking instructions and then go have lunch? That instruction about open your eyes and smile has become, um, uh, I've been using it more and more. I'm very impressed um, with the potency of it. It's a Thich Nhat Hanh instruction, not so much open your eyes and smile, but smile. Um, I think it has such profound um, possibilities. You think, well, that's very banal. Why should I smile? I'm, especially I'm... If I'm not happy, why should I smile? Or this is a time when my relationship is in conflict, why should I smile? And um, Thich Nhat Hanh would say, why not? You know, that, uh, that at least we are saying, at least I'm going to do everything in my power to relax my body, at least, to come to this with a feeling of goodwill, that we can, in fact, enter into difficult, challenging situ- situations with our body, with our life, with what's happening to us and with our relationship with goodwill and a certain amount, as much relaxation as we can. And when we smile, at least saying, I'm relaxing and I'm coming with goodwill. So this is what I thought we might do for lunch. Uh, I think we take an hour. And uh, I'd like to suggest that you have a lunch with your partner that you came with. because of the rain, you can either go up to the dining hall and stay there. Uh, it's a little difficult to have an intimate conversation because it's we're a hundred people or more. And uh, or you could go up there. What's up there, by the way, is tea and fruit and cookies. And you brought your own lunch. And there's tea here, so you might deputize one of you to go get some fruit and cookies and bring them back. You might both go. You might forego the fruit and cookies. That's your decision. What I really would like to see, because there is tea here, what I'd like to suggest that you do in terms of your conversation is I'd like to suggest that you have conversation only with your person. You have a little mini retreat now with your person. And uh, that you do the logistics of eating first. Where do you want to eat? What shall we eat? Here, there. Yeah, you say, I mean, it's make it uncomplicated, one thing at a time. Get the logistics of the eating done, find yourself eating. Then I'd like to tell you a way of uh, taking Upandita's uh, practice of tell me the leading edge of your practice, how it might work in relationship. It's something about saying the best thing about yourself and saying the best thing about the other person. There's a line in Julius Caesar that says, um, uh, apropos, uh, I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him, the evil that men do do 
lives after them, the good is often turned with their bones. I think that's sometimes true, that we forget when people do some tremendous treachery, we remember them for their treachery and we don't remember that they may have been a poet or that there was something redeeming about them. I think the, the opposite is much more true in normal life, that when people die, what was disturbing about them really recedes and we see what was most lovely about them in eulogies. All of a sudden, people remember the things that were particularly lovely about the person who died. I think, in a certain way, it's because the parts of them that were difficult aren't around anymore and they don't frighten us. And when they don't frighten us, we have space in the mind to remember what was lovely. Often people in conflictual relationships with a parent discover after the parent dies that they have a flood of memories of quite lovely things about that parent that they didn't have space for as long as the frightening parent was around in this world. I think that happens sometimes, often, in intimate relationships, where, especially conflictual ones, where one of the partners dies. This is sort of an extreme exercise, but one of the partners dies, but the other person suddenly discovers that they were so preoccupied with the difficulty that they forgot the other part. So I want to tell you that this is a true part of my relationship. I hope it's not macabre. But many, many years ago, we began, I can't remember the beginning of where this began, to say, uh, probably, probably my husband's mother died, or one of our parents, my mother died, quite a long time ago. And uh, we began the practice of giving eulogies for people that were our intimates in a certain sense. And we said, what would you say about me? Assuming that I predecease you, what would you say about me? Three things. You get to say three things. So I said some 20 or 30 years ago, thought it over, and I said, these are the three things I would say about you. What would you say about me? And he said his three things. Those are still the three things I would say about him. And it's been very useful for me to remember in times of great difficulty that those three things are still true, even in times when we were really significantly annoying each other. Uh, those three things are still true. They recede in importance when annoyance fills the mind, but those three things are still true. Then we had a, a corollary to that uh, practice, and the corollary was, you have to think about it again, these are the three things that I value about myself that I hope you would say, or I would have hoped you would say as well. Um, it's kind of like Upandita leading from what your sense of your own clarity is. And it might be, uh, I used to say is one of my things, please tell everybody I'm a terrific cook. And... Uh, my person would say, well, you are, but that's not really... That's not what's most interesting to me. I mean, you got other stuff ahead of that. Uh, so it's really important for me for you to tell everyone that I'm a terrific cook. <laughs> but it's important for him to know that piece of information, whether or not it's a piece of his eulogy, because then when we sit down to dinner, it's important for him to remember, so this is great. You've really un outdone yourself because it's a wavelength that I relate to. Yeah? Not his significant wavelength. 
could have opened a can, but it's a wavelength <laughs> that I relate to, so to remember. Maybe could have opened a can, maybe less, but... Anyway, so they're both significant. What would you say about me? And this is what I really hope about me. The reason it's, it's more than... It's more, it's, I, I think they're quite profound, actually, because I think we stay with people when we do, because on some level there are enough really important things about them that are somehow written into us so that even when we are overwhelmed with difficulty, they somehow keep us going. And then when the difficulty recedes, oh yes, yes, now I remember why I'm with you. It's A, B, and C, and maybe a few other things. The reason that it's important to say, this is what I hoped you would say about me, whether it's I'm a terrific cook or whatever, is I think we want so much to feel seen by our person in relationship. So if they say, and I'm using the cooking probably, overusing it, but if they say, yes, yes, but that's not significant to me, it means a whole piece of me, some particular aesthetic piece, didn't get seen. And we really want our person to see us. I think about the fact that Beverly Sills' child, one of her children, was deaf. And it seems to me so extraordinary to have one of the world's most amazing voices and have a child who can't hear it. That we really want our person to get us in the fullest sense. They won't be able to because nobody can fully get the whole essence of somebody else. But we want to know that they're trying. I think actually we fall in love with people. I'd like you to think about this. Maybe it's not true, but it's my working hypothesis. Is that we fall in love with people actually when we have the sense that they see us. That other things that we, you know, if we make a list, you know, if you read the the classifieds or the you know the personal ads in the newspapers, you know, if it were as easy as that, we could just dial a computer and it would send us the right person. You know, that it's the right shape and size and age and, you know, likes films and walking in the country, et cetera, et cetera. And send a thousand people with those criteria. But we, but not, and we go out, you know, the folks who have done that know that you go out to coffee with a bunch of people like that and they're very nice and nothing happens. And then suddenly with some people, something happens. And I'd like to suggest that apart from all the karmic reasons, if you may have known them in a last life or whatever, there's a way in which certain people, we resonate to certain people, I think because we feel that they see us, really, and get us, and we're waiting for people to really see us. So it's important to say, this is what I value in you, and I would say it in the eulogy, or I would say it to the person who asked me tomorrow, why you were that person? It doesn't have to be as perhaps extreme, or I hope not macabre as a eulogy. But these are the parts in me that are valuable to me. I hope you're admiring them. I hope you noticed that I can sing, or write poetry, or I'm a great cook, or that I always remember your birthday, or that I'm sweet to your mother, or whatever. Something about me that I'm hoping you notice because it's something in me that I'm really, that I think of as meanness that I want you to see. So that's all the instructions. It's not a lot to do. It's just the three things about you and the three things about me and eat the lunch. 
but do it slowly. <laughs> do it slowly, take turns. Do it here or there or wherever and do it only with your person and come back here in one hour. Thank you. That's probably a place to start from that, um, that understanding that everybody really is trying as hard as they can that if we could hold that view, there are certain there are certain things I think that are axiomatic. That when our mind is clear and focused, and we're reasonably calm. We remember as true. Remember when I started this morning and I said this big major breakthrough of understanding. He's eight years old. Eight year olds don't remember their homework. It's like a, a thing that's true. And before you have that understanding you think you feel this person is doing it to me or see we take it personally not like just a thing that's true one of the uh, places that I also operate out of is a sense that nobody purposely wants to make a mess of things <laughs> that uh, you know that if we do uh, <coughs> we were doing the best we can and people often say well they could have done better but they couldn't have if they could have done better they would have. Um, it's actually a, 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 a whole topic of discussion that comes up on Wednesday mornings. Uh, frequently, we talk about... There was a, a day that I was approaching Spirit Rock. It was Wednesday morning. I was rushing in the door, and here came somebody from the class, and I said, Hi, Rose, how are you? And she said, uh, I'm fine. You know, just as people do when they're coming into somewhere. She said, I'm fine. Uh, and then she said, well, you know, actually I have this problem and that problem. And this problem is also happening. But then she said, but actually, she said, I'm fine. And so when in the middle of the class, I was talking about what really wonderful dharma it is. It's just as I've been encouraging you to end the sitting with smiling. doesn't necessarily mean we're pleased with the state of our body or our health or our mind or our relationship. But it's a statement that this is manageable. I think the ultimate, one of the ultimate dharmic understandings in which we take refuge is that life is a manageable thing. It's difficult, but it's manageable. Not only is it manageable, it's appreciative. It's appreciatable, or we could celebrate it. Um, it's difficult. It's supposed to be, but we could do it with a non-embittered heart. That is such an amazing revelation that we don't need to be pleased in order to be happy or be content, was such a major learning for me in my life. I thought you had, in order to be content, you had to be pleased. could be unpleased and still be content and say, well, right now things are not going in the way that I hope, but I'll try to fix them up. It's, again, it's one of those, it makes, it makes sense. It's, again, like dealing from strength. Uh, so on that day when I came in and Rose said, you know, I'm fine, we all talked about it, and uh, we decided maybe we should have that as, uh, like, clubs sometimes have, like, a secret handshake or a secret thing that they say to each other to let each other know that they're in the club. We said, well, maybe that will be the secret spirit rock uh, greeting. We'll say, oh, you fine. But actually, we have a better one that um, Gwen said, so this has gone down in history, is Gwen's remark. And... Uh, Gwen said, when people ask me, how are you, Gwen, I say, I couldn't be better. 
because actually that's true of all of us all the time. Even we make a terrible mistake, we mess up, we put our foot in our mouth, we behave ineptly, we say something really unskillful, we hurt somebody's feelings. We even, we say, well, I didn't purposely, even we purposely, so to speak, purposely, I'm so mad, we said, just for that, I'm hurting his feelings. We couldn't be better, because if we were clearer, we'd be doing it another way. Actually, there's a, I'm trying to think of the, um, Of the of the passages somewhere in the book of Deuteronomy, there's an injun- there's an injunction about having cities of refuge, where uh, if a person does a crime, does a does a, 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 a hurtful act on somebody by accident, uh, they can run to a city of refuge, where they'll be protected. It says, until the heat of the heart. <coughs> of the relatives of the person who was hurt calms down. So that the example is given um, if uh, people are chopping down trees in a forest and and, uh, the axe handle flies off and the axe handle flies into somebody else and kills them. It was an accident. But that person's family, but you are in fact the murderer. And so that family's family could come after you and murder you back in their place of passion. So they were set up, or the the instruction is given in the book of Deuteronomy, set up uh, cities of refuge where a person can run to hide if they do something hurtful by accident (laughs) until the families of the offended person, their hearts can calm down and they can see clearly. And I want to submit that I think that every time we do something hurtful, it was an accident, so to speak, like a flying axe handle. It's something that we couldn't help when we speak unskillfully, when we behave unskillfully, when we get carried away by our lust and do something that undermines our relationship. We get carried away by our anger and we do something that undermines This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 1, 1998. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.